Well, good morning, everybody. <laughs> In somewhat of a way, I'm very nervous this morning. I don't know why. So I'm kind of glad there's a small get-together. <laughs> the, uh, I, I guess what you would call just an important even though it seems like we've been on an extended break lately, <laughs> um, and to really just focus our mind on some key doctrines to build up the saints. So this morning, what I'm talking about, what we'll cover is Christian biography. I want to look at the life of a man who is known as the Prince of Preachers, the greatest Baptist preacher of all time. Uh, his name is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. But before I begin, let's... Let's open up in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, bless this time. Ultimately, it's not about our, our dear brother Spurgeon. It's about your grace and mercy as evidenced in his life. Uh, the God of Spurgeon is our God. Let us learn from our brother and how you worked through him. Let us be convicted to do more. But yet at the same time, let us also be encouraged to see the same power that was at work in Spurgeon in us working as well. Lord, convict hearts, encourage weak hearts. I, I leave it up to you, Holy Spirit. I ask you to do your work. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Title of the sermon this morning is The Fruit of Conversion. The Fruit of Conversion. This will be a brief study of the life of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Spurgeon was born on June 19, 1834 in Kelvedon, England, to John and Eliza Spurgeon. Now, John at the time was a vocational pastor at Colchester. He worked during the day, but biographies do not record what his actual work was. But he also pastored a, a church on the weekends there. Charles was the first of 17 children, and you parents think you have it tough. Uh, yet the family did no great tragedy. Nine of those children died in infancy. At 18 months old, Charles was sent to live with his grandfather and grandmother in the town of Stamborn. Not much is really known why he was actually sent there. Um, our history books don't record why he was sent to his grandparents at 18 months. But it, we can maybe speculate it was about this time that his oldest sister, the second born of the Spurgeon house, was born. And possibly there was some complications either with mother or with child. And Spurgeon had to be sent away. It also could have been for some sort of financial reasons. Yet there, as he uh, went to his grandmother and grandfather's house, uh, this proved to be a, a huge um, tool in the hands of the Lord to really develop this young man. Now, his grandfather, James, was a congregational pastor. He preached faithfully at the same church for 54 years. He's a man really renowned um, for his excellence in preaching and his gospel call. His grandparents greatly influenced young Charles. I want to go over just a, a few ways in the time that uh, we have that, that he was influenced by his grandparents. First of all, young Charles developed a, a great love for, for reading there. Up uh, in the top part of the house was his grandfather's library. Uh, it was kind of a dark place. During the, that time, England had literally a window tax. Very similar, I guess, what you could uh, say today in the government today. They would tax people on light. The government will find a way to tax you on anything. So they boarded up the window so they wouldn't get taxed on it. 
and, and that was very common in England at that time. But there in his uh, grandfather's library, it, it was lined wall to wall with these uh, immense leather-bound Puritan books. Now, at first, Spurgeon was just really greatly uh, drawn to the binding of the books and how beautiful they were. But then he, reading at a very young age, found them to be a treasure trove. Some of the greatest Puritan works were there. And it was there in his grandfather's library that he obtained his first copy of what would be his favorite book, John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. By his own estimation, he read it cover the cover between 100 to 150 times in his lifetime. Now, Spurgeon had such a keen intellect that he was comprehending by the age of 10 some of the most difficult Puritan works. If you ever read John Owens, you would understand what an amazing thing that is. Some of the most brilliant minds that the, the church has produced. Here's a 10-year-old boy um, reading them, comprehending them totally. His grandmother greatly influenced Spurgeon as well. She, at this time, uh, started giving him a penny for every Isaac Watts hymn he would memorize. Little did she know that Spurgeon had pretty much a photographic memory. And so, complaining that she was, you know, Spurgeon was driving them to poverty, she then reduced it to a half penny for every hymn that he would learn and Finally, grandfather had to get involved, and he offered Spurgeon a, a different type of way to earn some extra income. He would pay him a shilling for every 12 rats he killed, and Spurgeon said he gave up uh, him learning for, for rat killing because it was more profitable at the time. <laughs> Yet if you actually look and read through the man's sermons, which there are volumes upon volumes of them, that hymn learning was put to good use. On average, he recites between two or three hymns per sermon. I think the biggest influence was this, though. His grandfather often took young Charles on his pastoral visits. And so Charles thus grew up thinking and acting like a pastor. He was a pastor in training even from the earliest age. Uh, an example of this, I'll, I'll give you part of the story. Spurgeon one evening was um, overhearing his grandfather bemoan the fact of this, uh, of this wayward man in his congregation. This man's name was Rhodes. He was totally worldly, and um, seeing the great pain that it caused his grandfather, Spurgeon, you know, we're talking about a five-year-old boy here says to his grandfather, you don't have to worry about him, grandfather. I'll take care of him. I'll kill him. <laughs> grandfather, greatly surprised, was like, Charles, you can't do that. It's wrong, and the police are going to come get you. You can't do that. Oh, don't worry about it. I'll kill old Rhodes. Yes, I will. Well, the old man didn't think that uh, too much of it, kind of let it go, kept it in the back of his mind. But it was recalled a little bit later, as uh, either later that day or, or the next afternoon, Spurgeon uh, came in and he says to his grandfather, well, I've done it. I've killed old, old Rhodes. His grandfather, quite shocked, wanted to get more out of him, but Spurgeon wouldn't say, don't worry, grandfather, he won't bother you anymore. I've been about the Lord's business. Well, Mr. Rhodes came to the Spurgeon house, kind of illuminated what happened. He was sitting at the bar, smoking his pipe and, and drinking. When in walks young Spurgeon, young Charles, goes right up to him and really takes him to task, points his finger right in his face and says, What doest thou here, Elijah? sitting with the ungodly, and you, a member of the church, and you're breaking your pastor's heart. I'm ashamed of you. I wouldn't break my pastor's heart, that's for sure. And he just walks out. At first, Rhodes was very 
aggravated at the boy, but it, it hit home. It was true. He went to a solitary place, confessed his sins before the Lord, and had come to James Spurgeon to ask for his forgiveness. Record shows that he was a faithful and serving member in the church. And young Charles was greatly used in that man's life. At the age of six, Charles was sent back home to live with his parents. Uh, both grandfather and grandson were greatly saddened at this departure. Both moved to tears. And it's there, as grandfather said to the boy, when you look at the moon in Colchester, I'll be looking at the same moon in Stanbourne. Spurgeon never looked at the moon again without remembering his grandfather. Now, in Colchester, Spurgeon finally entered school at the age of six, so he was a little bit behind his classmates. Yet he excelled above all of them. There was a story of one time he didn't excel. The teacher had made a seating chart where he ended up putting the top student in his classroom near a very drafty door, and it was during the winter and very much away from the fireplace. He realized his mistake, and he redid his seating chart and put the top student near the fireplace, and all of a, all of a sudden, young Charles was at the top of the class again. Now, from age 10 to 15, Charles came under the, the deep sense of his lostness and his need of conversion. Here's a, a young kid who had never done probably any vile or heinous sin. Probably about the worst thing he did was tell a lie. Yet he was under this immense despair that really colored all of his thinking. He was in a battle within. He was under a deep depression for five years. Now much led to this. He was in the Bible quite a bit. He, understand his, he understood his guiltiness before God and breaking God's law. He did something that's very rare for anybody, a young person, let alone even an, an older person. He didn't compare himself with others. He saw in the truest sense that his, his sin was against God. And he had a deep understanding of the righteousness of the Lord and his justice. At the same time, he was reading many of the Puritan books that were written um, with a, a, a theme towards the self-confident Christian who thought that they were saved but not. He, he listened in his autobiography about five or six of these, and I, I think I've read about three or four of them. And they are deeply convicting. And so he was getting pounded underneath that as well. Then there's the ministry of his mother, which I think God used in a very great way to awaken this young man to his need of conversion. Every night she read the Bible and explained it to her children. She was the expositor of the household. And she prayed. And oftentimes her prayers were, went in a similar vein. It, it, it was something like this. Now, Lord, I, if my son perish, it shall not be for lack of wisdom. I've shown them the gospel. And if he lay not a hold of Christ, I must bear witness against him on judgment day. For Spurgeon, the idea that his mother would come and testify against him on the day of judgment and condemn him to hell along with Christ ripped apart the young man's conscience. As a result, Spurgeon resolved to attend all the places of worship until he was saved. He went many, many, many times and he, he lists some of the sermons that he heard during this time. But he only heard sermons of two sorts, on the law and on sanctification. He never heard the gospel. 
He even himself said there was not a more attentive listener in the whole place. He desperately desired to know how he might be saved. Yet he never heard it. At the age of 14, Charles was sent away to the boarding school at Maidstone. And it was here that he was first introduced to uh, the Baptist view of baptism, believer's baptism. He had grown up and, and was raised in households by his grandfather and, and father, both pastors, and they practiced infant baptism. So this doctrine was so new to him and it blew away his mind that he thought that he would look at scripture and decide the matter for himself. And it was then and there after much study that Spurgeon concluded that the Bible does speak on this topic. He made the conclusion that if ever he was converted, if ever he was saved, he would then become baptized. Now still under the despairing guilt over his lostness, um, Spurgeon, now home for, for break, was going to hear a sermon on January 6, 1850. On the way to the church, he was caught up in a severe snowstorm. Little did Spurgeon know that by the providence of God, the snowstorm would be used in his conversion. I'll read what Spurgeon wrote in his autobiography and let him speak for himself. I sometimes think that I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist church. In that chapel, there must have been a dozen or 15 people. I had heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. But that didn't matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. And if they could tell me that, I didn't care how much they made my headache. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I supposed. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up to the pulpit to preach. Now... It is well that preachers should be, instruction, uh, be instructed, but this man was really stupid. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. His text was, look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words right, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, look and don't take a great deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot, your finger. It is just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. He may be the biggest fool and he can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone could look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, Look unto me, I, he said in broad Essex. Many of you are looking to yourselves, but it is no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you say, well, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business in that right now. Look unto Christ. The text, the text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend into heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. When he had gone about that length and managed to spin out about ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say, with very few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes upon me, as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. 
but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow, and it struck right home. He continued, you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death, if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. Like the brazen serpent that was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed, and so it was to me. I'd been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. At that moment, I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. Oh, that someone had told me this before. Trust in Christ and you will be saved. Open up your Bibles. Let's look at that text, Isaiah 45, 22. It's my hope and prayer that God uses this today the same way he's used it in the past. The opening of this verse can be translated two different ways. It could be translated, look unto me and be saved. That's what it was translated there in the older translations of the Bible, the King James. Or here it says, turn to me and be saved. Both translations are very good. Both translations show the fundamental elements of salvation. The looking and turning. If you want to look at it this way, it's two sides of the same coin. We're to look to Christ. What is that? That's faith. We look to him alone to save us. We don't look to our good works. We don't look to to our good outweighing the bad. We don't look even uh, to anything else but the perfect atoning work of Jesus on the cross as the sole sum and substance of our salvation. We are to look to Christ alone and trust in him alone. Or it can be translated as in our Bible's term. Turn to me and be saved. This is, if you will, the other side of the coin. It speaks of repentance. You turn away from yourself. You turn away from your sins. You're turning away from your self-sufficiency and turning to Christ. If you have truly looked, you have turned. And if you have turned, you have looked. A few notes about this. This is, first of all, a command. God commands faith and repentance. This word turn is not an optional thing. God himself commands it. In Acts chapter 17, verse 30, God says through the Apostle Paul, God now commands everyone to repent and believe is fixed a day of judgment. Not to trust in Christ alone and not to repent of our sins is a grievous sin against the Lord. God commands faith and repentance. Secondly, 
Look at them, precious promise. For the one who turns and looks to Christ, he promises salvation. Turn to me and be saved. Those who repent and believe will have their sins washed away, will be counted as righteous before the Lord, will have everything made new and become a new creation in Christ Jesus. We naturally don't want to turn away from ourselves. There needs to be a greater motivation. And what greater motivation is there than this? That our sins can be forgiven. That we can have eternal fellowship with God and be saved. Third, notice the extent of this offer. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. This is the general call of salvation. It's offered freely to everyone. Why should we be the greatest missionaries? Well, the gospel goes out to the ends of the earth. It is that powerful to save. This command is for you. The offer of salvation is for you. Why? You're on the earth. Lastly, notice, I guess you would call it the supremacy of God in salvation. For I am God and there is no other. God alone is the one who can save. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who can save. Not you, not your good works, not to have a buffet and trusting in other religions or, or, or grabbing different things out, kind of a new age type of idea. Buddha won't save you. Allah won't save you. Your good works won't save you. Your friends or your parents' faith won't save you. God draws it to a conclusion. He wraps it all up. For I am God. This is why I command you to repent. I'm the one that can actually save you since you've sinned against me. I'm offering this freely to the ends of the earth. You must do business with me, God says. I am the only God. There is no other. There's no other way of salvation. There's no other Lord but the Lord Jesus Christ. God alone is the only one who could save. Well, back to Spurgeon. On May 3rd, 1850, Spurgeon was baptized in the river uh, Lark. And even there today, there's an engraved stone there that show the place of his baptism. And with all this being said, I'd like to, to point out for the time that we have remaining, eight fruits of Spurgeon's conversion. The biography is going to be a little bit out of sequence and order at a point here, but I, I do want to actually draw this to some points. What were the evidences that Spurgeon really looked to Christ? And why am I uh, going through it? And, and I could have just went through this uh, biography in a linear fashion. Well, we need to inspect our souls today. The fruits of salvation that Spurgeon experienced, do you experience them? Eight fruits of his conversion. The first one, he served God with his talents. Ultimately, we can look at all of these fruits. What, is they, what do they point to? Spurgeon was being made more and more daily like Jesus Christ. The day after he was baptized, consider this. Spurgeon was out and about passing out gospel tracts. He didn't waste any time. He would even uh, throw one out the window of a train so that somebody would even pick it up. He wanted to tell everyone about Jesus Christ. The day after that, on Sunday, 
Spurgeon began teaching a Sunday school for boys. I wouldn't recommend this to many people, but who are just saved. But you have to consider that Spurgeon was so um, enraptured with Scripture. Even from a, a young age, he finally just got the last piece of the puzzle, and now it all fit and made sense. Everything else had been worked out. This helped, tell, uh, helped to he, uh, hone his talents. Even the adults were blown away at his teaching. And in the winter of 1850, Spurgeon preached his first sermon at a, call, at a small cottage. Um, it's an interesting story. He was kind of tricked into it. This, he befriended this man as he was at this school who was the head of a pastor's association. And the man went to him and said, look at him. I'd like you to accompany me and you to meet this other young man. He's going to be preaching, and I think you'd enjoy your company, and he's nervous, and he, he would like to have you around. Spurgeon said, okay, yeah. So he gets picked up in this carriage, and here's this head of this pastor's association and another young man, and, you know, they had pleasant talk as they're traveling to their destination, and as they're getting closer to it, Spurgeon turned to the young man and said, look it, I'll be praying for you. May the Lord bless your preaching endeavor. May you speak with boldness and power. The man looks at him puzzled. I'm not preaching today. There's no way I'm preaching today. I, I will not. You're mistaken. It's then and there that Spurgeon understood that the man tricked him and so that he would get into the pulpit. He said that all he could do was um, teach a, a Sunday school lesson. The man said that it would, it would be fine. He went and prayed. He spoke on 1 Peter 2, 7, the text, unto you who believe he is precious. He didn't have a loss of words. He, he spoke very well and all seemed to be marveling at his sense of understanding for such a, a, a young man. You have to understand he's, he's 15 years old. And now for about a year, Spurgeon busied himself doing similar things, teaching Sunday school and filling in many, many requests to preach in the pulpit at many churches as his fame and reputation in that small community started to grow and, and spread out. He's very gifted in this. And in fact, so at the age of 17, Spurgeon was called to pastor a small church at Water Beach near Cambridge. The, the small congregation soon began to burst at the seams as, as many came and flocked to hear this young man preach. They were blown away by his eloquence of words, his understanding of the, the gospel, and even the, the deepest truths of Scripture. Yet it wasn't a, an easy pastorate. You wouldn't want to send a young man into a place like this, let alone a, a guy of age 17. The church had been not highly divided. At that point, um, there was great, um, just almost anarchy in that church. Spurgeon was barely getting paid enough to get by. He had to take even odd jobs and to even make his ends meet as he was there. Um, there was a strain of hyper-Calvinism that was going in the church, and hyper-Calvinism takes God's sovereignty to the point too far where they say, look, at if someone is elect, they're going to be saved. It doesn't matter how they live. They're not going to lose their salvation. So they had a, a type of antinomianism going through the church. Antinomianism is just a big word that means you live like there's no law. So it was very common for many of the members of the church to get publicly drunk and stuff like this. And here is the 17-year-old boy having to deal with it. And yet even there, God blessed his efforts. Spurgeon never spoke at any point in his life harshly about his experiences there at Water Beach. At the age of 19, Spurgeon 
was really excelling in his preaching ministry, and he was called to pastor the largest Baptist church in London, the famed New Park Street Chapel. His fame had stretched there, and and this was quite a remarkable calling to come and and, and pastor this church, especially for a 19-year-old. This was, in a sense, one of the most famous churches in that area. If you're a Baptist, it is. Their their former pastors, a man named John Gill, one of the greatest Baptist theologians around. In fact, if you probably uh, get any type of Bible software, a lot of times they'll give you a lot of his commentaries, Gill's commentaries, or his body of divinity work. He was an extremely famous theologian and one of their former pastors. Another um, of their former pastors was this man, John Rippon. He, um, again, was a theologian, a pastor there, and and gained a lot of fame because he compiled the Baptist hymnal that was used at all the Baptist churches. So Spurgeon had some big shoes to fill, and he's called in there, and it's his first day in the city, and some of the group of people kind of gathered some of the other pastors around from the, the city of London. And they thought they'd welcome young Spurgeon to London and check him out. Well, at this party, at this meeting, they took one look at Spurgeon and just thought him to be a country hick. The way he dressed, the way he talked, the plain language that he spoke with. And they kind of derided him. You're not going to last here. These guys are other pastors. Spurgeon was so shooken up that he stayed up late just in terror that he'd have to preach the next night. Finally, really late in the evening, he turned his eyes and attention on the sovereignty of God. He understood that whether or not he was um, going to make it at Park Street Chapel was, was one thing. But he knew God called him to preach there. And preach there he would, and he slept well. He, he preached boldly. And, and the people there were blown away. Soon he was the rave amongst all of London. Everyone was coming to, to hear this young man preach. This church that had, their numbers had greatly dwindled, all of a sudden their building could not contain all the amount of people that were coming to hear him preach. He used his giftings as a preacher there to speak three times a week to overflowing crowds. And oftentimes taking other invitations to speak at other churches and other assemblies, he would oftentimes preach ten times a week. So we can see Spurgeon served the Lord greatly in his giftings as a speaker and as a pastor, as a preacher. Secondly, he used his giftings as an editor. It was shortly after being called the New Park Street that he he started to publish his sermons. Now he spoke extemporaneously. He just had a basic outline as he entered the pulpit. And there was a couple people in the audience who would write down his words in shorthand. He would then go and get up on Monday after doing his prayer time and and Bible study and edit these sermons, send them back in for revision. They would then put the the typecast and get it ready for publication, send one proof back to Spurgeon for any final copying and edits, and then he would send it back. His giftings as an editor are amazing. On average, 25,000 sermons of his were sold every week. It is thought to, by many that Spurgeon has sold more than one billion of his sermons. One billion. His sermons were translated into 20 different languages. And in fact, Spurgeon preached and edited so many of his sermons that they composed the most prolific output of any Christian author in history. 
his works as an author, as an editor here, far outweighs anyone else. It is said that his sermons take up more than 25 million words. He spoke so often and was able to use his editing skills to such a degree that he would, they, his publisher was able to continue printing his sermons at one a week for 22 years after his death. The only thing that stopped the printing and publication of his sermons was a paper shortage in World War I. Not just as his gifts as a preacher, not just his gifts as an editor did Spurgeon serve God. He was also greatly gifted in administration or organization. He was the one that organized the building of the Metropolitan Tabernacle after the church really outgrew their uh, location at New Park Street. He even organized the architecture of the building, and it's interesting, he greatly influenced church architecture as a result. He wanted the columns out front to be Greek architecture, Greek columns. Why? Because he said the New Testament was written in Greek. He organized even the meeting places while the new, or while the Metropolitan Tabernacle was actually being built. So we rented out places, uh, public meeting houses like uh, Exeter Hall, Royal Surrey Gardens, and the Crystal Palace. Some of these places could hold 20,000 people. And it could even, uh, there you could kind of imagine the giftings of this man's voice to be able to speak loudly and clearly enough for a room of 20,000 people and they can all hear you. Well, Spurgeon organized a pastor's college in 1857 and often lectured there. He organized even two orphanages, one for boys in London in 1867 and later one for girls in 1879. He was greatly influenced by George Mueller in this and wanted to um, show his charity and love of Christ to others who are downcast and had not. He organized even an association to distribute Christian, distribute Christian literature in 1866. Here's a man of exceptional gifts and talents, and yet he used them to serve the Lord. Secondly, what is the second mark of, of the fruit of Spurgeon's conversion? He pursued holiness above all else. Here is a man who, who set the example. He's, he's a man that was like the Apostle Paul who could stand up before his congregation and say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He knew people were looking to him as the pastor of his flock of, of what a man of God should be. And give you example over, over example of this as he led in purity and holiness. I think it's just best to... to let Spurgeon speak for himself here. And I quote from Spurgeon here. He says, I have now consecrated all of my prayers into one. And that one prayer is this, that I may die to self and live holy to him. Spurgeon said, I cannot trifle with the evil that killed my best friend. I must be holy for his sake. How can I live in sin when he has died to save me from it? Third. Third fruit. Spurgeon was urgent in pleading with unbelievers. Spurgeon saw so many conversions under his ministry because his sermons were greatly evangelistic. I think he took with him that sense of that time under those five years when he greatly desired to be saved and hear the gospel and never heard it. No matter what text he preached from, he made a beeline straight to the cross and implored and begged his listeners to believe upon Christ. I invite you to just read this for your own. Start with his sermon entitled, Compel Them to Come In. It's from Genesis chapter 24. 
It's one of his most famous sermons, and it started a, re- a mini revival in England. I think this is greatly seen as desire, as urgency, this pleading with sinners to believe upon Jesus in this interesting story. Two days before he was going to speak at this great venue called the Crystal Palace, this holded, uh, held over 20,000 people. Spurgeon took a friend there and tested to test the acoustics. So he had his friend go and stand in the back of the place while he ascended to the pulpit that they were building there. There were still workers around, and he is going to um, see if his friend could hear him in the back of the place. Now, what Spurgeon said was the forefront of this man's heart and mind. This was the most important thing on his heart. He said with a loud voice, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's interesting to note about this. 27 years later, he was called to see this dying man. This man said to Spurgeon, Do you remember when you came and tested the acoustics at the Crystal Palace? I was working that day. And all of a sudden I heard this voice, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And said, I became greatly convicted of my sin. And the Lord through that led me to salvation. Spurgeon said in his own words, Love your fellow men. Cry out about them. Cry about them if you cannot bring them to Christ. If you cannot save them, you must weep over them. If you cannot give them a drop of cold water in hell, you can give them your heart's tears while they are still in this body. Spurgeon said, We cannot go on as some Christians do without converts. We cannot, we will not, we must not, we dare not. Souls must be converted here. And if there not be many born to Christ, may the Lord grant to me that I may sleep in the tomb and be heard no more. Better indeed for us to die than to live if souls be not saved. Fourth, fourth fruit of Spurgeon's conversion is this. He read the word vigorously. Every morning Spurgeon devoted himself to, to scripture reading and to prayer His mind was so saturated in the the word of God that for him he could begin working on a Sunday sermon very late on Saturday night. And yet preach so eloquently and so doctrinally correct because scripture was on his mind all the time. His mind was so much in the word, this is another interesting anecdote. But it shows how much his mind was in the word. One time he had the text for a sermon. He had it down. He knew what he was going to preach. But he had kind of difficulty arranging it and structuring his sermon. His wife Susanna at the time finally convinced him to go to bed. You'll, you'll get it in the morning. Literally about as soon as he fell asleep, Spurgeon began talking in his sleep and preaching a sermon on the text. His wife jotted down the notes. Spurgeon woke up in the morning, found the notes, loved them. This is exactly what I wanted. And preached from that text that very day. You can see sermon number 74 of Spurgeon's, A Willing People and an Immutable Leader is the title of that sermon that that happened at. Now, this is interesting. That happened only three months into their marriage. I wonder if Susanna wondered what she got herself into. His mind was so impacted with Scripture that he saw life through the lens of Scripture. He he would draw illustrations out of common things in life. In fact, once before his pastor's college, they they kind of made a little bet. The students didn't think that he could write a whole book on illustrations, scriptural illustrations, just on one subject. He took up the bet and then gave many lectures. I think it was a series of five lectures that ended up becoming a book. And all the lectures, he points out spiritual truths through the illustration of a candle. And you can still buy that book. It's in print. It's called Sermons and Candles. It's it's amazing. 
You could see how the man's mind worked. Fifthly, the fifth fruit of Spurgeon's conversion is this. He was greatly countercultural. First of all, I mean, the culture says exalt self. Spurgeon was a humble person. He put others first. Spurgeon, I, I don't think we can understand exactly how extremely intelligent he was. He had a photographic memory. He could, in fact, say um, there was times when he was preaching where he can hold eight thoughts simultaneously in his mind, be preaching and praying for a few different people in the congregation at the same time while he was able to speak eloquently. So here's this man who's so smart, has such a vast knowledge of language, and yet unlike the preachers of his time, most preachers caught up and were very pompous. They wanted to show off how eloquent and great and poetic they are. Spurgeon spoke in the common man's language so everyone could understand. He was not like the pastors of his time. He wasn't up there to show off how smart he was. He was there so that souls could get converted. That his listeners could understand the word of the Lord. Spurgeon was countercultural in that he could have became extremely wealthy, yet he, moved, he used a lot of his money to establish, establish this boys and girls orphanage. And he oversee uh, and gave much of his money to just overseas missionaries' efforts. His great friends with David Livingston and Hudson Taylor. And he had quite a lot to do in overseas missions. In fact, right when he first got started, he was considering that he would go and become a missionary to China. Spurgeon was humble, and, and, and literally there's this account that his wife Susanna has. He was so humble, and he did not seek his own fame. That is so countercultural. This is best seen in a sermon called The Eternal Name. His, this is near the end of the sermon, and his wife said that his voice was failing him and he could only whisper, oh, that my name would perish, that you would forget about me, he said. But let Jesus Christ's name live forever. Jesus, 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 crown him Lord of all. And he just repeated that. That's his heart's desire, that he would be forgotten, that Jesus would get all the fame. Spurgeon was countercultural in that he gave up Christian liberties so as not to tempt others to sin. Spurgeon himself saw no problem with drinking alcohol. He always drank it in moderation. Yet, later on in his life, seeing the effects of this and understanding people were looking to him as the pastor, he joined the temperance movement. He totally abstained from alcohol. He gave up this liberty, even though it was not sinful, because he did not want to tempt anyone else to sin. The man was very countercultural. He denied himself. Sixth, Spurgeon experienced great suffering. That's the sixth fruit. He was constantly under attack in the newspapers over a style of preaching. They thought that he just peddled the gospel out. I've seen some of the caricatures that they drew about him, and it's just awful how they attacked the man. One example of this, and, and this is a great tragedy, and this really pinpoints his suffering. It was at the Royal Surrey Gardens Music Hall. It, it was their first Sunday there. This was a huge place. It could seat over 10,000 people, and it was packed well in advance as many people gathered there to hear Spurgeon preach. As Spurgeon ascended the pulpit, somebody in the audience yelled out, Fire, fire, the balconies are collapsing. Such a, a panic ensued. Seven people died, 28 were severely injured. Spurgeon was so depressed, he, he went into almost a semi-coma type state. He didn't awake for 36 hours. And he was severely depressed over that, thinking he would never preach again. 
just add misery upon misery. The papers blamed him for the whole thing. He suffered in his ministry greatly, even in a family sense, from sickness. First of all, there was his sickness. He had rheumatism and gout and Bright's disease, but this didn't stop him from ministering to others and, and going at it for great hours. I'll speak of that a little bit later. Then there's even his wife's sickness, Susanna. She is one of the most godly women you'll find in, throughout Christian history. She became so sick in 1868, and this would last to the end of her life, that she had an operation, and, and it didn't fix matters. From that point on, she very seldom left the house. Oftentimes, didn't even leave bed. And here's Spurgeon having to pastor this huge church, care for his wife. He had his own sicknesses, and he had to take care of his twin sons. And he did it faithfully. Seventh fruit. He operated in love and charity. I spoke about the orphan houses that he um, established. For time, I won't get into that. But I, I think this is um, a few points here will make it clear. Even though Spurgeon was a Calvinist, you don't see in any of his sermons or letters or other writings where he personally attacked anyone who, hold to a, who held to an Arminian theology. He was very charitable and loving. Spurgeon was so loving and charitable to others, he often wore himself out to extreme exhaustion in serving others. Many times he put in 18 hours a day. 18 hours. His friend and famous missionary David Livingstone remarked upon this. He says, how can you do two man's work? Spurgeon said to him, David, you forget there are two men working. He was referring to himself and Christ. Lastly, the last fruit. Spurgeon never, never, never compromised the truth of Scripture. Never. There are four major controversies where he really had to stand up for the truth. The first one is a, kind of an ongoing thing that spread throughout all of his ministry. That's just the antinomianism of the day. His dealings with the hyper-Calvinists. If you want to learn more about this, Ian Murray has written a book called uh, Spurgeon versus Hyper-Calvinism, I believe. It's a great read. Just by midway a point, we have that fight today. There's a new breed of antinomianism around. We have to fight it in ourselves. We have to fight it in our society. As we people live thinking, I'm saved. It doesn't matter how I lived. Spurgeon is calling us to that. The Lord himself is calling us to that. Second major controversy was actually over a hymnal called the Rivulet. It was extremely popular in the churches of the day, yet Spurgeon denounced it openly in his publications. He, he basically said this, it's, you're singing basically these hymns that are nature hymns. He basically went on to say, look at this would be more appropriate if you had in a service towards Native Americans, towards these Indians who who in their pantheistic beliefs worship nature, it'd be far more appropriate there. It is not about God at all. Now, some of us might think, man, this is way too outrageous. Why would Spurgeon do this? Is he just maybe going overboard on this? Well, let me read you an excerpt from one of these hymns. Now, remember, this is being sung in a church. That's how it's being promoted. Here's one. When the wind is blowing, do not shrink or cower. Firmly onward going, feel the joy of power. Heaviest the heart is in a heavy air. Every wind that rises blows away despair. 
Or, our heart is like a little pool left by the ebbing sea of crystal waters still and cool when we rest musingly. It had nothing to do with God. The church exists for the glory of God. That's another battle that needs to be fought today. To get back theology and sound teaching even in our singing. If you could sing the same song to your boyfriend or girlfriend, husband and wife, then it's probably very lacking in theology. Third, Spurgeon got in a third controversy in 1864 when he preached a sermon denouncing baptismal regeneration. This challenged the Church of England, the Anglican Church, which held that infants that were baptized were saved through the baptism. He showed in Scripture how this was so wrong, and he pointed to the truth of a believer's baptism. This just stirred up the hornet's nest. Um, He was greatly attacked over it. Uh, But it became an immensely popular sermon. 350,000 copies of that sermon were sold. His last major controversy was the, the downgrade controversy. It's named this way because Spurgeon saw that the Baptist Union that he was a member of was starting to downgrade the sufficiency and the inerrancy of Scripture and letting in humanism into the church. It was very seeker-sensitive. They were taking these ideas that are anti-God and placing them into the church. We need men and women in the same way to stand up like Spurgeon did as he denounced this. And there was very few people that stood by his side. Ultimately, this controversy and stress that placed on him killed him. He himself was saying that closely before his death and even his son said the stress of him standing for the truth, standing for the truth of scripture, that scripture alone was sufficient for our life and godliness, killed him. He died on January 31st, 1892. Here is the greatest Baptist preacher of all times. Yeah, what can we get out of this text as I wrap it to a close? I think it's pretty obvious. Are you sure you're saved? Are you sure that you are saved? Do you serve God with your talents? Pursue holiness. Urgently plead with unbelievers to be saved. Read the scriptures often. Live a countercultural life that denies self, takes up a cross, and follows Christ. Experience godly suffering. Operate out of love and Christian charity. And never, never never compromise the truth of Scripture. If you, by God's grace, can say yes, then rejoice. And yet, look to Spurgeon. There's still more we can do. Our time is not done on this earth. There's still greater areas of growth. But if you do not, I believe Spurgeon would say, you need to obey the text of Isaiah 45.22. I'll end with that. Look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace and mercy that you've bestowed upon such a man. And most importantly, Lord, we thank you for the grace and mercy that you've given to us. We thank you for our brother. 
Even though he is dead, yet he speaks. And his life is a powerful testimony of how great of a God you are. Lord, make us like Spurgeon. In one sense, so bold for the truth of the gospel and bold calling sinners to repentance. And yet so loving and kind and compassionate and tender. Ultimately, Lord, make us like Jesus. This is our prayer. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. Wrapping up our, our time here, I want to point you to the cross. The text that was read at the opening spoke about the salvation that God gives to sinners. And it's through the cross. The cross is folly, it's foolishness to some. But for us who are saved, it's the power of God of salvation. Spurgeon knew this. He lived it. And so should we. In fact, Spurgeon's motto came from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. It's printed on his books. We preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. As we live life, we preach. The world is watching. We must preach to ourselves the, the realities of the crucifixion and the resurrection, the heinousness of our sin. And I invite you to cast all your cares, your, your sins before the Lord even here this morning to, by remembering the great sacrifice that Jesus had to pay to forgive sin. Do not take it lightly just because we do it every week. Commit yourself to faith and repentance, to turn from your sins, to trust even in a more fuller way today in the finished work of Christ. Be resolved to do that. And so eat of the bread and drink of the juice with joy, knowing that your sins are forgiven if you are a believer. If you're not a believer or you have just rampant, unrepentant sin, I, I beg you just do not partake in communion. You will only be provoking the Lord to judge you. With that said, may you enjoy this time. May your fellowship with Jesus Christ be sweet. The elements, elements are on the side. Thank you.